All right, why don't we open with a word of prayer and then we'll dive in. We've got the longest book of the Bible to cover today, the book of Psalms, although in really many ways it's a bunch of little books, but we'll hopefully make it through. Uh, Pam informed me that you guys did an overview of the Psalms in Bible study this week, right? Yes. So, awesome. It'll be double double duty for those of you that were there. So, All right, well, let's dive in and go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your gracious gift of Christ himself, our Redeemer. We thank you that as Boaz redeemed Ruth, so he has acted on our behalf to deliver us from our wretched condition through his own sacrifice for our sins, through his resurrection, has united us to himself uh, in the bonds of the new covenant, taken us as his bride. We thank you for the blessings that we have in him, every spiritual blessing, as Paul said, the unsearchable riches of Christ. We love our Lord Jesus. He is our great treasure for whom we would give all and we do lament our own weakness in our humanity our own corruption in our fallen state and how we don't uh, hate our sin enough how we don't love Christ as much as we ought how we disobey him in so many ways in our sinful state but we thank you that as far as the east is from the west so have Far have you removed our sins from us. We thank you that you are mindful of our frame, that we are but dust, that you don't treat us as our sins deserve, that you're merciful to us, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And so we rest in your grace. And we pray that again today, as we have gathered for worship, you would meet us in your love and power and feed us with your word, wash us with the water of the word through the sanctifying work of the Spirit. And we pray that that would begin even this morning in this class as we study the book of Psalms. And Lord, help us to grasp and understand this book and to be better equipped to study it as in our lives going forward and to understand its place in the Bible, etc. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, we are in the book of Psalms. As you can see, next week is our last week in this trimester class. I mentioned before I'm going to be continuing on and finishing uh, the Old Testament in a second class, and that's going to be obviously focusing entirely on the prophets. So that will be fun. Um, It will be really, hopefully, a a blessing to you to just dive into the prophets. So let's let's look at the book of Psalms today. I just want to start with some introductory things here. Uh, First, obviously, its composition, it is really a collection of poems or songs. So in many ways, you know, the book of Psalms is sort of like this, right? (laughs) Uh, For God's old covenant community, it is a collection of um, poems, poetic prayers slash hymns. In terms of who wrote the Psalms, well, a few things need to be said. Obviously, each individual psalm has an author. So this is not a book in your Bible written by one person, but rather by many. Sometimes the author of a psalm is identified in a superscription. And according to the superscriptions, many psalms have the same author. So there are a collection of psalms written by David, of Asaph, the sons of Korah. And then there are some psalms, there are individual psalms that seem to have been the only psalm written by a single, by one person, such as Moses wrote one of the psalms, famously Psalm 90, I believe. And then also, we recognize that many of the psalms are left anonymous, so that we don't know who wrote them. Also, regarding the date, obviously, if you have a number psalms written by a variety of different people, then you and some of them are unknown, then there's going to be a level of mystery to the dates. Most of the time, the historical background of a psalm is not revealed. So, by the way, what would be an advantage of that? Having a psalm written by someone in particular circumstances, but those circumstances are not revealed. What would be an, ex- an advantage of that? If it applies to more than one situation... 
Right. It gives it a sort of um, timeless feel to it, right? Such that even though clearly some person wrote this psalm out of his own experience at the time, because that experience is not revealed, you feel like wherever you are in history, especially if you're in those similar circumstances, you can own that psalm. So that's something that is interesting and helpful about it. When the author is identified by the, in the superscription, or you might say title, of the psalm, well then, it, of course, it can be dated, at least in general. So the Psalms of David would have been written in that sort of 40, or um, that period of time during his life. Some of the Psalms will actually tell you specific incidents in the life of David in which it was written. So obviously some Psalms can be dated, but in general, scholars have suggested that there seems to have been, obviously, if one of the Psalms was written by Moses, and then some of the Psalms seem to have been written much later than that, uh, by during the reign of David and afterwards into Solomon's reign and even beyond, there's probably about a, a thousand year period during which these Psalms were written. So, I want to say a little something about the superscriptions or titles of the Psalms. Uh, many of the Psalms have these little superscriptions written up at the beginning of the Psalm, which give information about the Psalm. So, in fact, if someone would look up Psalm 42, who would be willing to do that? Okay, Mom, uh, Psalm 45, someone look that up. Beverly. And then Psalm 18, someone look Psalm 18 up. Anyone? Are you willing to do that? Psalm 18? I got it. Okay. So, some Psalms, the superscription will identify the author. So, Psalm 42, Mom, what does it say? For the director of music, a masculine of the sons of Korah. Okay, so that Psalm tells us it was written by a group called the sons of Korah. And um, Psalm 45, some Psalms tell us the melody. So, Beverly. Your throne of God is forever, the choir master according to lilies, a masculine of the sons of Korah, a love song. Right, so there's particularly that little phrase, according to the lilies, is probably a reference to a familiar tune in that day. Even many of the hymns in our hymn book were written to familiar tunes. In fact, if you have an older hymn book, like the old Trinity hymnal, you'll probably notice that many hymns were actually written to the, were put to the same tune. Or maybe they didn't like that tune, so they picked a different tune, common from the day, and would put the hymn to that tune. And so there were common tunes to which the, the hymn, the, the, certain of the psalms were intended to be sung, and they would actually tell you the tune that, it was, that you were to sing it to. Psalm 18. To the choir master of Psalm of David, the servant of the Lord, who addressed the words of this song to the Lord on the day when the Lord delivered him from the hand of his, all his enemies and from the hand of Saul, he said. Okay, so there we're told something of the historical background of the psalm. The, the title says that it was written by David on the day that the Lord delivered him out of the hands of Saul and all his enemies. And others are will give even more specific uh, details about the psalm. That's rather unusual, but there are some superscriptions that do say that. Now, there is debate in, what do you call it, psalms scholarship about whether these superscriptions are original and whether they are reliable. By original, we mean... Were they actually included in the when the psalmist, whoever he was, actually wrote the first psalm? Did they write the superscriptions too, such that it's part of the inspired text, or was it added later on by some later uh, author? Some um, typically liberal scholars like Reverend Childs are going to say no. It's the, these superscriptions are not original, nor are they reliable. So when the, the superscription says that this was written when David was delivered from the hands of his enemies, that's not actually, not only did David not say that, but that's not actually true. Some, and these two would be very conservative. Uh, this is, E.J. Young was a great, one of the great reform scholars uh, at Westminster back in the day. Uh, well, Princeton, and I think he taught at Westminster. Um, and then Derek Kidner is a very widely renowned evangelical scholar in the Psalms today. 
So Kidner would say that they are original and also, obviously, if they're part of the inspired text, reliable, they're true. And then there are others like E.J. Young who would say that, no, the superscriptions are not part of the original text, but, he says, we should take them as being generally reliable. In other words, we don't have any reason to question them as being accurate. Now, what are some of the evidence that we have to consider in evaluating this issue? Well, one is that some of these superscriptions are in the earliest manuscripts that we have of this of the book of psalms but it is also clear that we have this manuscript tradition in other words you know manuscripts were copied and copied over time and we can see places where an earlier copy lacks a superscription and a later copy has it and so you can see that even in the manuscript tradition that some of the superscriptions were added later on So some are in our earliest manuscripts, some were added later on, which throws a little bit of uh, doubt into the mix as to whether all the superscriptions were actually part of the original text. Some of the superscriptions are affirmed by the New Testament writers. So if you look at uh, Acts 2.25, we won't go there, but if you look at Acts 2.25, he quotes Psalm 16, you know, God will not let his him see decay in the grave and if you and it says david in in the text of acts 225 peter says david says this and where is he getting that well if you go back and you look at the text of psalm 16 it says that it was written by david so there are times in the new testament where you can see that the new testament author is aware of the title and affirms it as true right so that's another piece of evidence but also some of one obvious thing that you can see about the superscriptions is they're written in the third person. So it says, in other words, you have a psalm written by David, and then the superscription says, a maskal of David, or where it, tell, it speaks of the author in the third person. This was written by the sons of Korah. And so you think, hmm, well, if, if the original author wrote the superscription, wouldn't he put it in the first person rather than the third person? So it's, it's, none of these are definitive, right? But there are pieces of evidence to consider. Uh, you could make arguments for what they mean and how they should be interpreted, but there are things to be considered. This is why you could have conservative scholars like Kidner and Young on coming to different conclusions about the superscriptions. And then finally, conclusions. This is my conclusion on the matter. It's possible, it is possible, it seems to me that not all the psalm titles that we have in our English Bible, which represent you know, a particular ma- manuscript tradition, were actually part of the original text. But since the New Testament seems to always affirm them as reliable when they make reference to a superscription, it seems that that should be our practice as well. So while we might not be certain Uh, that they are all part of the inspired text, it seems that we have every reason to treat them as reliable. So I guess where I'm falling out is E.J. Young, sort of, right? Um, That I'm not sure that all the superscriptions were part of the original text, but that we should, I, I do believe that they should be treated as reliable, since that seems to be the way the New Testament treats them. Any questions about that? I know that might be something that you haven't heard of and might throw you for a little bit of a loop, but yeah, Keith. Well, I just know that when people talk about um, contradictions or perceived errors in the Bible of the manuscripts, they would, most times people look at what impact does this particular word change have on, right. Right. on the, the scripture itself. So if it is, if it was written by David or not written by David or not during that particular moment, did that change the rest of the psalm? And I, right. Are there any like that? I don't think so. I mean, I think that, you know, let's just say that maybe some of the manu- of the titles are not original. You could see somewhere along the line a scribe looking at the psalm, seeing how it seems to, it is a psalm of, seeing how it seems to fit a particular incident in David's life, you know. <laughs> well... And, and so he, he puts that in. Let's just say, hypothetically, that that happens. I mean, you look at the psalm and you could say, yeah, that, that does seem to fit that incident in David's life. 
if that isn't true, if the if the um, superscription isn't correct that David did write at that particular point in his life, well then that's not really going to affect you know the meaning of the psalm. And I would also point out that this issue of whether the superscriptions are accurate or not, like reliable or not, that in no way calls into question the inerrancy of scripture, right? Because what we're talking about is a manuscript issue. You know, were these titles that we read at the beginning? I mean, even when someone gets up to read a a psalm for public reading, people, you can see even there, like people don't know, should I read it or not? Is this more like, is this part of the original text or is it not? And so some people read them and some people won't, right? That's the issue. It's a, it's an issue of what you say textual criticism. Were these subtitle were these superscriptions part of the original inspired text or not? Um, and I would say it's unclear with respect to all of them. Some of them might be rooted in a long-standing tradition that goes back to the very authorship of the psalm. Some of them may have been added as the hymn book of the psalms was being compiled. Um, they may have been added over time. We don't know, but the New Testament seems to affirm at least some of them, and so it seems that we should treat them as reliable. Like Psalm 51, where right. David confesses his sin against you and you only. I mean, that seems so obviously, David, that mm-hmm. it's hard to... It does, because we always... David. <laughs> it does, because we always read it as against that background. Yeah. But you also see that if you read the psalm, it could be, it could be anybody, yeah. anyone who has committed some terrible sin, right? Yeah. So, I, again, I mean, go to Keith's point. It doesn't really affect how you read the psalm. It is true that if the titles are accurate, it does. It adds a, a layer of um, impact, right? When you think of Psalm 51 against the background of David. If David wrote that psalm, it certainly seems like the likely... <laughs> Incident in which he would have wrote, written it, although there would have been other incidents in his life as well. Any other questions? Okay. Literary features of the psalm. So all the psalms were written in Hebrew poetry. Um, in terms of, so they, they are, the literary genre is poetry. They can be broken down according to similar features that they share. And there's all kinds of different ways that scholars have clumped them together into groups with common features. I'm just going to take one from an introduction to the Old Testament book that I have. And this is reflects generally, basically what you have is you have maybe four or five groupings of categories of songs that sort of everyone acknowledges. And then you have some that will want to like break these up into two groups instead of one or and so you end up with you know more or less categories but these are generally reflect the categories of psalm there are psalms of praise like psalm 100 psalms of lament like psalm 70 psalms of thanksgiving like psalm 18 psalms of confidence i mean you could hear think of psalm 23 the lord is my shepherd i shall not want so expressions of confidence in god and his character his faithfulness psalms of remembrance which are like psalms that look back on israel's history and remember the things that he's done for israel psalms of that that have that seem to have common features with the proverbs or ecclesiastes wisdom psalms so you remember psalm 73 where the author tells the story how he he almost stumbled when he thought of how the wicked seemed to be prospering and how he as a righteous person was suffering. And then, then he was in the temple and he remembered that the end of the wicked was going to be short and the righteous were going to... And so you have, it's like this, almost like the book of Job, right? It, it tells a story where he learned a lesson of wisdom. Psalm 1 is another one where you have this sort of this polarities in the psalm, the why, the way of wisdom, the way of foolish, and think about Psalm 1, right? Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked and sits not sit in the seat of scoffers, but blessed is the man who meditates on the word day and night. He's like a tree. So you have wisdom psalms that reflect features of wisdom literature. And then you have royal psalms, which are really like all about 
God as king and also his anointed king, where you have this sort of, could be David or Solomon, but also often they, they speak beyond to a greater king to come, right? God's ultimate anointed. So this is where you have often messianic psalms, even though you could say that certain lament psalms are messianic as well. And one of the famous lament psalms is Psalm 22, which opens with what words, you remember? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which Jesus took to his lips on the cross. So different categories of psalms. And it's interesting to think of the psalms as being like a hymn book. And what what's interesting about having different types of songs. How is that helpful if what God is doing is giving his covenant people a book of hymns to, to pray or prayers to pray, hymns to sing? What's helpful about the fact that they're, they have so many um, different kinds of psalms with different notes, some praise, some lament? How does, there are words for every situation. Right. Like he, he's giving his people language to pray, with which to pray and to sing to God, to relate to God in the midst of a variety of different circumstances. Which, by the way, is informative for us, right? In the New Covenant, as we think of our own prayers and songs, that they shouldn't be one note always, but that they should reflect the variety of circumstances. So, we talk about this even with our music leaders, that we should have songs that lament, Songs that confess sin and lament our trial. And then you should also have songs that praise God, you know, as creator and redeemer. And songs that thank him and reflect upon what he's done, right? A variety of songs. And we should also, Ephesians 5, sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Last week, I think we sang a psalm. Do you remember which one it was? Psalm 103. As far as the east is to the west, so far have you taken our sins from us. I mean, it's... We're not actually singing the exact words of the psalm, but we're singing the words of the song sort of rendered in a, in a sort of modern tune. The most common of all the psalms is lament. Isn't that interesting? Some psalms are individual, you know, a very personal song. Some songs are corporate. Right? You have individual laments and corporate laments. You have songs that are intended to be sung by the whole gathered congregation and psalms that are intended to be sung or prayed by a man before his God or a woman before her God, right? Very interesting. Um, notes about Hebrew poetry, because I said that these were written in Hebrew poetry. So, you know, you think of English poetry, you know, the great Robert Frost. I still remember my sister reciting one of Robert Frost's poems. And what's the common feature of English poetry? Rhyme. Whose woods these are? I think I know. His house is in the village, though. He will not see me watching, walking here to watch his woods fill up with snow. Right? It's, it's the, it's the the rhyme and meter. Right? Hebrew poetry functions differently. It's not based on rhyme. It's based on parallelism. Okay, so um, parallelism is the key feature of Hebrew poetry. But that parallelism is developed and used in sophisticated ways. So. A few examples here, just to give you a, a, a feeling of this. And I want you to turn to these psalms. So Psalm 2, verse 1. When you look at Hebrew poetry, you see parallel lines. One line and then another. Sometimes there'll be three lines clumped together. Or more. Or sets of parallel lines that all sort of are clumped together. But when the parallel the parallelism utilizes various kinds of parallelism. So... In uh, Psalm, Psalm 2.1, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? You see that the second line basically restates the first line. You see that? The nations rage, people plot in vain. So there's, some, there's a, a slight nuance in the second line, but this is what you call synonymous parallelism, where they're really restating the same thing in a slightly different way. That's one kind of parallelism that's used. Another kind of parallelism is what you call antithetical parallelism, and you can imagine what this is going to be like. But Psalm 1, verse 6, is an example of this. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. 
parallelism, but the second line contrasts the first line. You see? Antithetical parallelism. Another kind of parallelism is called synthetic parallelism, where the, the second line advances the thought of the first line, takes it to a different level. So, Psalm 24, 3-4. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? So there is a, a level of, synon it's a kind of synonymous parallelism, but it, it's advancing the argument. He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. You see, it's like building upon each line, building upon, advancing the idea of the line before, right? So there's a, that's another kind of parallelism. Another is climactic, where the second line completes the thought of the first line. So you have Psalm 96, verse 7 is an example of this. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Right? So what are they to ascribe? Glory and strength, right? So that's another kind of... And you can see like... You're going to have some difference of opinion about how to categorize what kind of parallelism is being used because well, sometimes there are shared features. I, my last line there, these kinds of parallelism overlap, right? You might have synonymous parallelism that is also climactic or and on and on. Uh, another kind, just to show you the level of sophistication, is Psalm 145. Psalm 145, uh, verse 2. This is what you call chiastic structure within the parallelism. Every day, okay, so look up here. Every day, I will bless you and praise your name forever, or, and praise your name. I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. So the, the, outs, the, the beginning and the end parallel each other, and then the two middle components parallel. So you have this, what's called a chiastic structure, where it's sort of focusing in. And you could say either... Either the middle part here or the outward parts are emphasized. Um, chiastic structure is something that you see often in Hebrew literature, almost as if they're, it's so ingrained into how they write that they, they're often thinking in, term, in chiastic ways. So th this is just to show you that it might seem simple, you know, parallel lines instead of these extravagant rhymes and and meters, different sophisticated meters, but there's actually a sophistication to it, all kinds of different ways that they utilize parallelism in Hebrew poetry. So that, that hopefully will help you to understand Hebrew poetry, which obviously is not just in Psalms, but almost every book in the Old Testament has poetry stuck in somewhere, right? You think of even, you go through Genesis chapter 1, it's just telling you about creation, and then it gets to the creation of man and woman, right? And, and it busts into poetry. Right? And God created them, male and female, he created them. Right? Um, God made man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So, uses poetry in that, uh, in that little section. And that's, that's often how it is in the Old Testament. Okay, so, yeah, questions? How do they, how do translators determine its poetry? Because of seeing things like this? Or is there something in the words that gives it away? No, I mean, if you were to look at a Hebrew manuscript, it would just look like a big block of characters, you know. So obviously, yeah, uh, scholars are recognizing and perhaps at times guessing that here this has features of Hebrew poetry. Sometimes it is not... I mean, what you're seeing in your Bible, it's easy to see in your English Bible because they mark it off and they kind of squish it down and put it in parallel lines. But, you know, you might see within different translations of the Bible, different reflecting different interpretations, is this poetry or not? Most of the times it's fairly obvious. But I was just thinking that it's nice that it gives a lot more room for expression to have this kind of poetry rather than just be tied down to meter and rhyme. Yeah. Because a lot of times people say stuff making it rhyme that isn't quite right. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know? Yeah. In a lot of poems. It could be kind of corny, it could be the means you know? for incredible poetry or it could be the means for cheesiness. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. so this way you have so many options of, yeah. of saying things. Yeah. 
you remember Barney Fife's poem to um, <laughs> what's her name in the diner? <laughs> I yes. can't remember. What's her name again? Juanita. 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 Oh, Juanita. You know, it's just like the rhyming can be like the source of just like total cheesiness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, so when we read Hebrew poetry, it doesn't hit us the the same way because we're so used to poetry utilizing rhyme and meter. But um, it is beautiful, and and of course, if that was the if you were Hebrew, it, that would be what you were used to. So, all right, let's let's keep going here. Structure of the book of Psalms. <clears throat> um, one, remember that Psalms is a the book of Psalms is a growing book. I mean, it kept being added to over a thousand years, which means that this hymn book was being arranged over a long period of time. Right, the, the, where the Psalms were placed in it and how it was structured is going to be something that was developing over time as psalms were added over a period of perhaps a thousand years. So many people would have played a part in the arrangement of this book. At some point, you know, there was a collection made and then there was it was that collection was added to as this as this book was passed down through the centuries. When you read the final order, the book of psalms in its final order, certainly it makes sense. There's logic to it. But you have to ask the question, is the order itself of these individual psalms inspired? If, if Psalm 27 was actually moved before Psalm 26, would that be violating the inspiration of Scripture? I would say probably not, right? I mean, perhaps you could argue that God you know, inspired every new way it was ordered over this time as each book was added. But... Perhaps not. Perhaps the order is not the point. And in fact, scholars of the Psalms have always struggled to identify some some uh, particular order to and to the and structure to the book. I mean, there are certain things that are obvious, but in terms of like why you must read the book of Psalms in this particular order, they've struggled. There's things features that you can identify clearly, and that that they make sense. But it doesn't seem that the order of the entire book of Psalms is somehow reflecting God's intentional design. Um, and, you know, there's arguments to be made on either side of that, even among conservative evangelical scholars. But that's where I kind of land on the issue. General features of the book. Well, it is arranged in five books. So if you were to go to in your English Bibles to Psalm 41 and you got to the end, you would see book two. It would say it in your English Bible. If you go to the Psalm 72 and you go before you get to Psalm 73, you'll see a heading, book three, etc. So the the final arrangement of the Psalm sort of separated them into or distinguished five books, five collections of Psalms. The Psalms by the same author are largely grouped together. This is not, you know, a hard and fast rule, but for instance, You'll find most of David's psalms, assuming the superscriptions are accurate, in books 1 and 2, right? So, before Psalm 72. However, you'll be reading along in books 3 through 5 and find psalms of David scattered here and there as well. But the bulk of them are in books 1 and 2. Psalms ascribed to the sons of Korah are mostly in these two sections here. And then the Psalms of Asaph are, are these. So you could see, you know, like 10 Psalms of Asaph are put back to back. So there's, that's part of the structure. You have these five books. Then you also have uh, sort of groupings of Psalms. And some of it, you know, makes sense. Like the Psalms of David. I mean, they were probably most, most of the Davidic Psalms were some of the first Psalms written. And then so you have this collection, this growing collection. And then you have more songs written by... Asaph later on, or Sons of Korah later on, and you might add those in, well, it would make sense that they would be placed after in the arrangement, after the Psalms of David. But then you might say, well, someone's going, yeah, but this Psalm of David really fits in over here. So you put it over over there. So the arrangement probably happened in that way as the nation, you know, perhaps under God's inspiration or perhaps not, uh, ordered this book in a particular fashion. So the Psalms, every word of the Psalms 
is inspired, but order may not be. Although you can see structural features that make sense. Other structural features that you could note, Psalm 1 seems to be intentionally put at the beginning as a helpful introduction to the whole book. And some, some would say that Psalm 1 and 2 seem to provide a, uh, a fitting intro to the entire Psalter. So also Psalms 120 and 134 are titled Songs of Ascent, which probably meant that they were typically used by pilgrims making their th- one of their three annual pilgrimages up to Jerusalem to celebrate one of the three feasts there. And then um, the Psalms definitely come to the sort of clim- climactic or crescendo ending with five straight Psalms of praise, right? So you get to the end of the book. Have you noticed that? When you get to the end of your reading the book of Psalms and it's just like, praise the Lord, praise the Lord, praise the Lord. You know, let everything that has breath praise the Lord. So... There seems to be a clear, clear that the, the Psalter was meant to end on this sort of climactic note of praise. And then finally, some argue that certain clusters of psalms were meant to be read in sequence. So let me just show you an example of this. If you turn to Psalm 37, okay, you have uh, a psalm of David. And if you look down at verse 7 it sort of captures a, a theme in this verse in this psalm it says be still before the lord and wait patiently for him fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way so that the theme of this song is you know the wicked seem to be winning the day where is the lord and the psalmist says wait upon the lord wait patiently for him don't fret uh, over the fact that the wicked are prospering and then if you go to psalm 40 And you look at the opening line of Psalm 40, it says, I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. And this psalm is all about deliverance from the wicked, right? So you could argue that whether or not it's the arrangement is inspired, that those who arrange the Psalter at times put certain psalms together because they saw a logical sequence like this psalm sounds a note that is answered in this psalm. And so it's, it, it makes sense for you to read these four psalms together. Does that make sense? Okay. Any questions on these kind of the structure of psalms? That's a lot of stuff I'm giving you. Okay. Purpose of the Psalter. Well, in the psalms, the Lord has given a prayer book or a hymnal for his old covenant people to use in both private and in corporate worship. Right, and this is how it has been used in in the history of Israel. So, and in the church as well. But we'll we'll get to that. You think of uh, a a person reciting a psalm in a time of as, as prayer to God in a time of anguish. You think of Psalm eighty eight. That's very dark, right? but also a psalm that they would, when they would come together to worship God in Jerusalem and they were assembling before the presence of the Lord at his temple in Jerusalem, there were songs that were clearly meant to be sung as the congregation. And there are psalms where you can see the congregational element in just the way that it's, so it'll say, you know, let the sons of Aaron praise the Lord. Let, you know, let the Levites praise the Lord. Let the, you know, whole congregation praise the Lord. Let the nations praise the Lord. And you can just see that it's clearly intended to have that sort of corporate flavor to it. Almost like a, almost like a sort of reader res- response type of thing going on in some of the Psalms. So, so this is, this is in general what it is. And they provide words which the covenant people of God can use to pray or sing to God, both individually and corporately, out of a wide range of human experiences. Which, as I mentioned before, this explains, I think, why the Psalms are not all that concerned with giving you the historical context, right? Because they're meant to be used by the people of God in every age. Without, They're not to be treated in the same way as a historical narrative where you're going back and trying to understand its historical context. This is, They're meant to have a sort of universal and timeless flavor to them so that they might be used by the people of God in any age. And this is why, I mean, gosh, us as Christians who know Yahweh, the one spoken of in the Psalms, we, we just naturally and immediately own these 
poems and hymns, don't we? So, think of the variety of different contexts. Confession of sin, Psalm 51. Lament over God's judgment. You think of the psalmist saying, your arrows have pierced my heart, right? Pleas for deliverance from enemies, like we saw in Psalm 37. Gratitude for his help in a time of need, right? I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined and he heard my cry, right? He lifted me out of a miry bog and set my feet upon solid ground. I'm rejoicing over his deliverance. Many of the Psalms, like we that one that Ben quoted the, sub, the title from, talks about that David composed the psalm when the Lord delivered him from the hands of Saul and from all his enemies. A praise for the character of God and his works and history. So some just focus on you know his, his sovereignty and his goodness and his holiness. The psalms, I think also, they, anyone who reads them recognizes that they reflect a profound understanding of human experience as well as providing a very, obviously this is God providing it to us, but an appropriate way to relate to God in those experiences. And that's so important that we recognize that, you know, a lot of people think that if they're going through a deep trial, it's all right to relate to God just with pure, raw, unrestrained emotion. Because your circumstances justify it. Well, God is merciful to us. And there are times when we do that and, you know, he, he bears with us. But that certainly doesn't seem to be the way that, for instance, the, God wants us to act. He provides psalms that, you know, you read Psalm 88 and it's just like, in fact, let's go to this psalm, Psalm 88. This is a, one of the, the darkest of all the lament psalms. Let's just say that you, um, you, you've lost your spouse to a car accident. I, rem- I remember that happened to one of my pals in seminary or his wife. He got out of his car on I-5 North going to Canada, which is where they're from, to help someone who was trying to drag a deer that he hit out of the road. He gets hit. His wife is in the car. His daughter, his two-year-old son is in the car seat. His wife goes, holds him for the last few minutes of his life, right? So this is horrific realities of life, right? Now read this psalm. O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. For my soul is full of troubles, and my life draws near to Sheol. I'm counted among those who go down to the pit. I am a man who has no strength. Like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. For you have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves. You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. I am shut in so that I cannot escape. My eyes grow dim through sorrow. Every day I call upon you. O Lord, I spread out my hands to you. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you? Is your steadfast love declared in the grave or your faithfulness in Abaddon? Are your wonders known in the darkness or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? But I, O Lord, cry to you. In the morning my prayer comes before you. O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Afflicted and close to death, from my youth up I suffer your terrors. I am helpless. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. Okay, so, first of all, you recognize that this psalm, I think no one could accuse the Psalter, like for instance this psalm, of not understanding the depths of human suffering and the, the, the way you feel in the midst of such difficulties. But it also gives you, and, and so here, most lament psalms end with a sort of declaration of God's steadfast love and faithfulness. So they'll say something like, yet I will praise you, or yet I will wait upon you, and I trust that you are faithful, or you will give victory to Zion. This one doesn't, right? And yet it still gives 
an appropriate way to relate to God, even in the midst of the deepest sorrows of life. Where do you see that in the psalm? What at least does it tell you, indicate to do? Yeah, verse 13. But I, I, O Lord, cry to you. In the morning my prayer comes before you. So he feels as if he's being swept away by God's wrath. He knows he's a corrupt and finite sinner. He feels as if God is over against him in wrath, but he cries out to Yahweh, right? So at least he's turning to Yahweh. At least he's not ceasing to reach out to his God. So do you see, this is the way you can see just in one psalm, a snapshot of how even in uh, the darkest of human experiences, it's resonating with your soul, or your soul can resonate with it, but it's also giving you an appropriate way to relate to God through it. Does that make sense? And there are many different things like that you can see. So it's it's inspired language by which you can relate to God appropriately in the midst of a variety of different circumstances. And then finally, in the process, the Psalms teach God's covenant people doctrine and practice, and they point them to the hope of redemption through the Messiah. So, while the psalm, this, the book of Psalms is not a doctrine book, it's not a catechism, yet it does teach doctrine, just in the way that it teaches you to sing. So this is something that we have to think about, right? Some people think, as long as our songs that we sing don't have any heresy in them or whatnot, you know, it's okay, we just sing whatever. But that, that doesn't take into account that our, our songs... Uh, are instructive. They're a discipling tool, right? And so if we're thinking appropriately, because isn't it true that songs, this is one of the reasons why you get concerned about what music your children are listening to, because you know very well that they, they teach things, they reflect values, a worldview, uh, and, tr- and, and truths, and they, they cut to the soul, right? So that even today, if you hear a certain song, it, it can stir within your heart memories and feelings. And so it impresses things upon us very deeply, right? So we want the songs that we sing, the songs of Zion, in other words, to be filled with rich biblical truth because we know they are instructive. And in fact, those two parallel texts, Ephesians and Colossians, and in Ephesians it says, you know, Singing songs and hymns and songs and or singing songs, hymns and spiritual songs, singing, making melody to, in your heart to the Lord. The Colossians passage talks about singing songs and hymns and spiritual songs, but it connects it with. Do you remember? What does it connect it with? Teaching and admonishing. Teaching and admonishing one another, and let, letting the word of God dwell richly within you. Right. So Psalms have this. Our singing has a discipling effect upon us, right? It's teaching us. It admonishes us. It So the Psalms do that as well. In fact, let's talk a little about theology of the Psalms. Luther famously called the book, the book of Psalms a little Bible. It's very Luther, isn't it? Um, you could see that line and say, well, it's either Luther or Spurgeon, I'm pretty sure. Because Psalms reflect so much of the Bible's teaching. I mean, if you start thinking about it, you know, what doctrine or what event in the rest of the Bible, what major event is lacking from the Psalms? None. Uh, so, if you go through the character of God, many of the Psalms speak to his character as the one God, as the creator, as the redeemer, as the judge. Many songs get to the heart of humanity, human sin, human weakness, and finitude. Humans, human beings' relationship to God. Think of Psalm 103. Redemption. They speak to God's deliverance of His people and the blessings that He lavishes upon His people. Think Psalm 23. Judgment. God's present and final judgment of the wicked. How He intervenes in history to judge and how He will judge at the end of the age. Uh, worship. Uh, so many of the songs deal with themes such as the assembly of God's people and His presence at Jerusalem where the temple is. I think of Psalm 87. And Scripture, the characteristics of Scripture, 
its effects upon man. You think of Psalm 19 or also Psalm 119, that great longest of all the Psalms that would take you about 25 minutes to read through it, right? And it's all about the words of God, the commands of God. History, many of the Psalms recount events in Israel's history, acts of judgment, acts of redemption, remembering their own sin, remembering God's grace, right? And then, of course, kingship, the theme of kingship, God as the king over all and, and his anointed one, his king. Again, as I pointed out, in the near term, perhaps one of the Davidic kings, but beyond as well to the ultimate ideal king that God would provide. Psalms in the New Testament. So I'm going to reference uses of the Psalms in the New Testament. And when you see them over here, you'll see the requisite verses what psalms being cited in the new testament over in the box so the new testament cites psalms more than any other old testament book which in and of itself is interesting but also when you think about it expected psalm 110 the lord said to my lord sit at my right hand until i make your enemies your footstool if you have eyes to see it that theme of Jesus being seated at the right hand of God. It just pops up so often in the New Testament. And all of those are allusions, it seems, to the words of this psalm. It's cited more than any other Old Testament text in the New Testament. The New Testament views the Psalter as relevant to the church in several ways. First, and maybe perhaps most obviously, we are told in Ephesians 5.19 to actually sing the psalms still. So, uh, it teaches the church moral and doctrinal truth, first of all. So you see the Psalms being cited in this way. For instance, Ephesians 4.26 says, Be angry and do not sin. That's actually a Psalm citation, right? A moral principle in the Psalms brought forward to the church. And there are many like this. It, teach, it anticipates the person and work of Christ. So the Psalms are cited in the New Testament repeatedly as referring, predicting to Christ, Psalm 2, Psm 110, Psalm 16, Psalm 22, etc, on and on and on. It continues to function as a prayer book. So this is what I was getting at. Ephesians 5:19 says that we're to be filled with the spirit, singing to one another psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. So not precluding new songs, but encouraging the church to own the Psalter in our Bibles as well. There are churches that will that think that the terms used in 519 of Ephesians are really just meant to be understood synonymously such that the Psalter is the only thing that the church should sing. And that's You've probably heard of Psalms only churches. And there are other texts like 1 Peter quotes the Psalms on different occasions. Just You can tell like just using the language of the Psalms Owning the language of the Psalms in our own experience. So, 1 Peter 2, verse 3. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Well, that's from the Psalms. Taste and see that the Lord is good, right? So, the church clearly owns the Psalter as to use it in the similar way that the Old Covenant community was to use it. Except, now it's understood in light of the full revelation of Christ, right? And then finally, this is my last side, I'm out of time here, but the Psalms and Jesus. The New Testament interprets the Psalms as anticipating the person and work of Jesus in a number of ways. Okay, so let me just work through some of these. Some Psalms are viewed as directly predicting the person and work of Jesus. So you look at a Psalm, like Psalm 2, where it says, I have set my king upon my holy hill. And he talks about how he gives him the nations as an inheritance and the ends of the earth as possession. Well, that's clearly not David, right? <laughs> that's David speaking of his greater son to come, the Messiah. So it's just a direct prediction. The same could be said of Psalm 110 of the Messiah, that he would be king over all forever, etc., that he would judge the world and rule the nations. Some psalms describe, it seems, the Davidic king, but in ways that clearly prefigured Jesus, the Messiah, and would find their ultimate fulfillment in him. So, for instance, you could look at Psalm 16, and you could see a miktam of David. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. Right? So, when you read that, but if you just start reading that, you're thinking, David, his experiences, right? Makes sense. But then you get down to, yeah, verse 10. 
for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. And do you remember how Peter handled this verse? He says, well, let me tell you, David is in the grave. We know where his grave is, right? He did see corruption. This must be referring to David speaking to his son to come, right? And so you see that there's David speaking of his own experience, but then anticipating the experience of his descendant, who would also be a righteous sufferer like him, but would there would be things that he says that would only apply to the Messiah. And, there, and other things as well are, are in these Psalms where it kind of goes back and forth, where it's speaking of the experience of the Davidic king, but that experience will clear, the New Testament recognizes that that experience, say, of a righteous sufferer or a reversal of fortunes for the Davidic anointed one will find its ultimate expression in the Messiah and therefore they are applied to the Messiah. Even though if you go back and you read the psalm, you go, well, that, that's David speaking about his own experience. Well, yeah, both end, right? David's experience will find its ultimate expression in David's greater son. Okay, and then some psalms describe experiences. This is kind of what I was just saying. That would be most fully embodied in the experience of Jesus. So... Psalm 69 is a is an, a classic example of this, where over and over the gospel writers see experiences that David talks about in the psalm that would find that would be most fully embodied in Jesus. And you know, just as an example, verse nine: "Your zeal for, for zeal for your house has consumed me." Right. Well, David's talking about his own zeal for the house of God against his enemies, and yet that the gospel writer sees that as finding its ultimate consummation when Jesus cleansed the temple. Or where this is the psalm where it says, let their own table before them become a snare, and when they are at peace, let it become a trap. Look at verse 21. They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. Do you recognize that one? So there are multiple references in here where the experience that David is describing is the New Testament recognizes, ah, but that found its ultimate consummation in David's greater son. And then finally, some words or actions in the Psalms and descriptions that are actually just attributed to Yahweh are then picked up and attributed to Jesus in the New Testament. Perhaps the most striking and interesting one is Psalm 102, where if you go back and you look at the beginning of the psalm, it's just talking about Yahweh. I will sing of steadfast love and justice to you, O Lord, Yahweh. I will make my music. And then he just begins to, or sorry, uh, Psalm 102, verse 1. Hear my prayer, O Lord, Yahweh. Let my cry come to you. Do not hide your face from me. And he begins to go through describing God. Verse 24. O my God, I say, take me not away in the midst of my days. And then you get to the end and it says, of old you laid the foundation of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe and they will pass away. But you are the same and your ears have no end. Now, if you go to verse 25 and you look at the cross reference, you see it was cited in Hebrews 1.10. And look how it's cited in Hebrews 1.10. The writer says, but of the Son, he says, And then he quotes two psalms. The second of the two psalms he quotes is the words I just cited from Psalm 102, which if you read the psalm, it's just, it's about God. It's about Yahweh. The writer of Hebrews says, of the Son, it says. In other words, the Son is God. He is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature. Like, he's God incarnate, so this psalm speaks to him, right? So, that, there's not many of those instances, but that is one dynamic you see of how the New Testament uses the Psalms as well. It's as if, in other words, the New Testament sees Christ everywhere in the Psalms, right? In a sense. So it becomes a very Christian book. And thus, why we are encouraged to use the Psalms in a variety of different ways, even as God's new covenant people. It's a hymn book, a prayer book passed down to us as well. All right, we'll end there. Let me close us in a word of prayer. Hopefully that will help you as you study Psalms and read it in the future to understand it better and to profit from it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this wonderful book, the Psalms. We thank you for this little book that in some ways contains the whole Bible in it.
We thank you for the way that you've provided us with language by which we can pray to you and sing to you out of a variety of different circumstances in our life and how the language that you've given to us captures our own human experience in all those circumstances and instructs us and teaches us how to relate to you through them. We thank you that you have expressed to us in the book of Psalms so much of the person and work of Christ that we might know him and love him and how he as the ultimate man, the ultimate Israelite, the ultimate Davidic son, that he, that so much of what is in the Psalms finds its ultimate embodiment and expression in his own ex- human experience and life and, and points to him as our great Redeemer and Savior and God. So we pray that you would help us to treasure and use the Psalms and to, and to be better equipped even from today to um, understand them and use them aright. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, guys.